Okay, I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. Last Sunday morning, we we read and we worked through John 17 verses 1 through 19, the first part of what we would call the high priestly prayer. This is Jesus's prayer right before he's crucified. Um, John records this. The other gospel writers do not record this prayer. It's lengthy, and there's a lot to it, and it's kind of strange. There's a lot of pronouns. Sometimes Jesus prays in third person, and the first part of the prayer, he's talking about what's ahead, the hour that has come, and then he prays for his disciples. And that's what we looked at last week, and and this week we're going to switch gears, and we're going to look at the end of the prayer. Before we do that, though, I want to remind you uh, that what we want to focus on as a church this year, our vision focus is Christ in us. We, being a diverse group of people, we're going to pursue unity while focusing on Jesus. We are pursuing unity while focusing on Jesus. And there's two main ways that we're doing that to start this year. One of those is what you've heard us say over and over. And I believe repetition is a great teacher. So that's why we keep repeating it, this gospel reading plan. Uh, I mentioned it during the welcome, so you probably didn't hear that. Uh, But to remind you, the gospel reading plan is in the back of the bulletin. Uh, Erica Wicks made bookmarks for the month of February. You can grab one of those bookmarks in the welcome desk. So we encourage you to read one chapter out of the gospel each day. We're doing that together. And I wonder what God will do through that as we pour over the scriptures, we immerse ourselves in the life and the teachings of Jesus. What is God going to teach us as individuals and as a church? The other thing that we're challenging you to do as we pursue unity as a church, focusing on Jesus, is to memorize John chapter 17, verse 20 through 23. Some of you remember that last year our theme passage was Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14 through 21. We challenged you to memorize it. I preached on it several times. I memorized it. Our kids memorized it. I've had several adults tell me they memorized it. And now what I find myself doing is if I'm listening to a podcast or another preacher or I'm reading a book and somebody references Ephesians 3, 14 through 21, I perk up because I think, hey, I know that passage and I know it intimately because I spent so much time with it. And that's why we're challenging you to memorize John 17, 20 through 23. We want you to memorize it, spend time with it, meditate over it. And I promise you, The more time you spend with it, not just glossing over it, but memorizing it word for word and really meditating on it, that I think God will do something uh, in you and through you through this text. And like last year, we made magnets. And so this is the magnet that we made this year for John 17, 20 through 23. And if your vision is not great, which I imagine most of you can't really see this very well, uh, I'm going to put it on the PowerPoint in just a second. We encourage you to grab one magnet per family. The magnets are out there on the welcome desk. We have more in stock, so hopefully I'll check tomorrow and they're all gone because you grab a magnet, put it on your refrigerator, and keep it in front of you. And here's what the magnet looks like. And let's read verse 20 through 23 and focus on this part of the prayer, which is our, our main passage for today. Verse 20, Jesus says, My prayer is not for them alone, because he's been praying for his 12 disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Pause on that on verse 20. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Who is he talking about here? 
He's talking about me and you for those who will believe in him. Jesus is praying beyond himself. And now at this point in this high priestly prayer, he has turned his attention towards us. So I pray for all of those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world will believe that you have sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Uh, you know, I started trying to memorize this. I think it was Thursday night. I spent five or ten minutes on it, and it's not that hard. You can start to memorize it, and the point of memorization is you keep coming back to it. And then the more you come back to this, the more you realize there's one thing that's very clear that Jesus is praying for at this part of the prayer, and that is for unity, for us to be one. In verse 11 of John chapter 17, he's already prayed that his disciples would be one, and now for all of those, for us included, for those who believe in the message, to be unified, to be one. Now, it's hard not to read this and be realistic and pay attention to the world around us. And then naturally, we have to ask the question, has Jesus' prayer ever been answered? Now, we're a part of 2,000 years of church history. And if you study church history, you would realize not everybody has always agreed. In fact, sometimes there's such strong disagreements that we are what we are today, where people are divided all over our town and all over our country because back in the past, people did not agree. People disagreed, so they split up, right? So Jesus prays it would be one, will be unified, and yet what we see in followers of Jesus is a lot of division, but Jesus still prays for it. One of the best ways for me to try to wrestle with and to understand what Jesus means by being one, what Jesus means by unity, is to look at first the opposite, the negative side of this. What is disunity? What does division look like? And I want to share with you three case studies. And as I share these stories with you, you might find elements of your own life in these case studies. The first one is this. Uh, back in 2016, January of 2016, I scrolled through the internet and I came across this news story from the Denver Post. And the title of the news story said, Aspen, Colorado, skier pushes snowboarder off of chairlift. So I started reading, and about 9.30 a.m. that morning, a skier and a snowboarder got on the same chairlift. And if you've ever gone to the mountains and gone skiing or snowboarding, you know that skiers and snowboarders, they don't always get along. And so these two guys got on the chairlift together, and an argument ensued. And for some reason, the skier pushes the snowboarder off and he fell about 20 to 25 feet off of the chairlift, which it's already terrifying for me to get on a chairlift, but now that I read that story, it's like I'm coming prepared to defend myself if I need to. But thankfully, the guy fell into a thick powder of snow. He was okay. He reported it to the authorities, and they were tracking that skier down. Now, I read that, and I was like, okay, there's a few lessons to learn here. One is whoever the skier is has some anger problems, some violence problems, some irrational behaviors, and that needs to be addressed in his life. Another thing that this highlights is that these two people represent thousands of people who are going to be on that mountain that day, and they have so much in common. They have a love for snow. They have a love for mountains, so much so that 
they get up early in the morning and they push themselves and they get to the mountain and they go all day long and they fight the dehydration and they do this because they love it. They share a similar skill set. They wear similar clothes. They have a lot in common. But what is amplified is their differences. One wears skis, one wears a snowboard, and they can't seem to get past their major differences, even though they have so much in common. And that's human nature. We have a tendency to amplify our differences. Here's case study number two. Uh, Two brothers back in the 1920s lived in this small German town, and they were the Dassler brothers. One brother's name was Adi Dassler, and the other was Rudolf Dassler, who eventually is known as Rudy Dassler. They owned a, a shoe company that they made shoes out of their mom's laundry room called the Dassler Brothers Shoe Company. Well, they became famous in the 1936 Olympics because Jesse Owens wore their shoes and he won a gold medal. So once people realized the shoes came from the Dassler Brothers Shoe Company, they got international attention. Well, sometimes success can come with some setbacks and their success caused some disagreement between the two brothers. And the two brothers and their families lived in the same villa. They were always around each other. And they started to not get along. There was a lot of conflict and confrontation going on. And to make matters worse, the wives didn't get along. So eventually, to make a long story short, they split up. They split the two companies. One brother went to one side of town. The other brother went to the other side of town. Adi Dassler started a company called Adidas. You heard of Adidas before? Okay, you've probably worn some Adidas shoes. Well, there's the background from where the company came from. Rudy Dassler started his own company, and eventually it was called Puma. So if you've ever worn Puma shoes, you know where, where the background of this comes from. So the two brothers split up, start their own companies, which are now very famous. And most of the people that lived in this town were employed either by Adidas or by Puma. So the conflict spread to everybody in town, and the town became known as the town of Bent Necks. Because anytime you saw somebody or interacted with somebody in town, the first thing you would do is you would look down and see what shoes they're wearing, whether you're wearing Adidas or Puma, and then you would decide whether or not you're going to talk to that person or associate with that person or walk them into your store or your restaurant based on what shoes they were wearing. So there's a little history. I think they're you know, since the brothers have passed away, the two companies have learned to work together and have had some soccer matches and things like that. But way back when, when it all started, it was started because of conflict, because of division. And that's within families. So you probably, maybe maybe not to that extreme, but you've probably experienced some conflict with your own family. Maybe some division, and maybe you're experiencing right now in your own life some disunity with your own family. And Again, human nature is to amplify our differences. Here's case study number three when it comes to disunity. I've read this story several times over the years. It's on the internet. And just by the way, here's a little helpful tip for life. Just because it's on the internet does not mean it's true. Okay, I've read this story. I think it's an element of truth, maybe mixed in with some legend over the years. There was a church that believed that Jesus literally wanted us to wash one another's feet. John chapter 13, Jesus washes his disciples' feet. And he said, I've set an example for you to do for others. Probably what Jesus means by that is to be a servant, to be willing to serve, to take on that attitude and mindset and lifestyle of being a servant. 
Well, they believe that you literally need to wash feet. So part of their every Sunday morning service was they would bring somebody up on stage and they would wash their feet. Well, as time went on, there were some disagreements about which foot you're supposed to wash first. Is it the right foot or the left foot? And this was an ongoing debate within this church because some people really believed that they had the scriptures to back it up. It's the left foot. And then the other group believed, no, the Bible says it's the right foot. It's always right hand, right foot. The disagreement grew and the confrontation was so strong that they wound up splitting up. And a new church was formed. And as the story goes, the church was called the Left Foot Baptist Church because they were the ones that believed you washed the left foot first. So you can listen to these stories, uh, true stories of human beings. Maybe they're a bit exaggerated. Maybe you haven't experienced that much disunity in your life, whether it's skiers or snowboarders, or maybe it's a different hobby that you have. And maybe it's your family or your siblings or church or whatever it may be. Maybe it's work or school. You probably all experience certain levels of disunity of conflict in our lives. The brother of Jesus, James, in James chapter 4, verse 1, he asks this question. These, those conflicts and disputes among you, where do they come from? And then he answers the question, they do not come from, do they not come from the, uh, your cravings that are at war within you? Uh, disunity and division begins with conflicts and disputes and disagreements and not being able to see eye to eye. And James says that begins with your internal self. It begins with what's going on inside of you. So in a sense, when it comes to unity or pursuing unity, we all have to do a little gut check. We all have to look within ourselves and see what our motives are. And James says these begin with the conflict, with this desire, these cravings that go on within you. Last week, I mentioned that a guy named Randy Harris, who's a professor at ACU, he wrote a book on the Gospel of John called Daring Faith. And in this book, he has a chapter on John chapter 17. Um, and Randy Harris is the one that pointed out that this prayer is, is lengthy, and it almost reads more like a mini-sermon than it does just a prayer. And in this book, Randy Harris talks about why he believes unity in churches is so hard. And he says the reason that unity is so hard is because everybody thinks that they're right. Everybody thinks they're right about everything all the time, which makes unity hard. That was hard for me to read and to share with you because there's sometimes when I know that I'm right. And I have to accept that maybe not everybody will agree with that. But his point is, if you look through church history, a lot of the problems start and are fueled by people determined that they are right and then if everybody would just get on board with what they believe, then we would be okay. The problem is, if everybody thinks they're right, somebody's got to be wrong at some point. And we've got to be humble enough to admit we may not be right on everything. We have to be willing to give a little. Last week I mentioned the movie Filled of Dreams. And towards the end of the movie, Kevin Costner's character says, asks this question, what's in it for me? And I mentioned, as I was talking about unity with the disciples, that often we approach prayer and we approach church with the same attitude. What's in it for me? And when we think that we're right all the time, when we are always asking, well, what's in it for me? Unity is difficult because we're focused on ourselves. 
So that's what disunity looks like. And I could go on and on and give more stories and more examples. And if we were having a conversation, I'm sure you could share some stories as well. What is unity? What does unity look like? Jesus prays in John 17, 20 through 23. I pray that they will be one so the world will know that you sent me. I pray that they will be brought to complete unity. What does that look like? What is unity? I think there's two main types of unity that I think Jesus probably has in mind here, and that's spiritual unity and relational unity. And I think, this is just my opinion, when Jesus says, I pray that they brought, they be brought to complete unity, that they be one, that's spiritual unity and relational unity working together in harmony with each other. Let me focus on relational unity for just a moment. When it comes to relationships, human relationships with each other, relational unity, uh, unity does not mean uniformity. Unity does not mean that we have to agree on everything. And unity does not mean that there's not diversity. Of course there will be diversity. In fact, diversity is one of the beautiful things about unity. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, Paul is dealing with a church that is experiencing division and disunity for a number of reasons. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul talks about how we are all a part of the body of Christ. We all make up this body. We all play a role in it. And using the human body as an example, with our spiritual gifts, with our unique passions and abilities that God gives us, we may be the fingernail, we may be the toe, you may be the eye or the nose or the ear or the arm or the leg, whatever part you are of the body, that part is important. The eye can't say to the foot, I don't need you. And the foot can't say to the eye, I don't need you. All parts are important. And what Paul is hinting at is that with the spiritual gifts that God has given us, there's diversity in that. But we can still find unity in diversity. That's part of one of our commitments as a church, one of our focus areas for this year of Christ in us. We, being a diverse people, will pursue unity while focusing on Jesus, who is the head of the body. I think a church is at its best, probably the same with a company or an organization, when we're unified because we have a common purpose and a common goal. Now, one of the questions I guess I've had as I've gone through this text is, how do we achieve unity? How do we get there? And what does unity look like? Is it just a feeling? Like you just know, man, we feel unified. Maybe that's it. You know, we know unity can't be forced. It can't be a, a formal arrangement. It can't be manufactured. Like unity, unity has to be organic in a way. So how do we achieve unity? And the more I thought about it, the more I thought, that's not the right question. The question isn't how do we achieve unity. The question is how does Jesus achieve unity for us. And this is where spiritual unity comes in. And I'm going to put this scripture reference on here and I encourage you to write it down and read it later today. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13 through 16, where Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus and one of the major problems in the New Testament was the division between Jews and Gentiles. And Paul mentions that there has been this barrier, this wall of hostility between the two groups that has lasted a long time in the cross of Jesus. The blood of Christ 
tears down that wall, tears down that barrier. We are unified together when we are in Christ, when we are clothed in Christ, when we're baptized into Christ, we experience a spiritual union. We are unified through Christ. We all come to Christ with the same level. We're all sinners in need of God's grace. And that's what Jesus does for us on the cross by shedding his blood. Okay, that's spiritual unity. But how does relational unity work in this? And that brings me to this word, glory. I mentioned last week, you look at John chapter 17. And Jesus begins the prayer and he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so that your son may glorify you. And then in John 17, verse 22, our main text for today, he says, the glory that you've given me, I have given them so that they may be one as we are one. What is this word glory? Why does Jesus use it so often in John? It's one of the key words in the Gospel of John. You either see glorify or glory all throughout John, especially in this prayer. What does glory mean? This will help us understand unity. Okay, today is Super Bowl Sunday. I've already seen somebody wearing their Kansas City Chief shirt. So tonight, the Kansas City Chiefs are going to play the San Francisco 49ers. The Cowboys aren't in it, so I really don't care that much. But I know it's an important game, and there's going to be millions of people watching. And in all of the world, whoever wins tonight around 9 o'clock or 9.30 p.m., the winning team will be considered the best team in the entire world at tackle football for this year. There's going to be confetti and fireworks and millions of people watching, thousands of people at the stadium cheering and chanting. And from a human perspective, that's glory. That's a glorious achievement. That's human glory at its finest, to win a Super Bowl or to win a championship of some sort or a victory of some form or fashion. So when we think of glory, that's what we think of. There's even a movie called Glory Road. But when you read John, most often, not every single time, but most often when the word glory is used, it's in connection with the cross. So when Jesus talks about his glory, like if you go back to John chapter 3 and verse 14, not John 3, 16, but John 3, 14, he says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so too the Son of Man must be lifted up. And in all four Gospels, as you read through them, Jesus is on a journey towards the cross. And so His glory in the Gospel of John is related to the cross. Which brings me back to unity. And the cross, Jesus' glory, is the path towards unity. Now that may be easy to comprehend if you think, of course, the blood of Christ, the cross, that's what unifies us spiritually. But the cross is also what gives us the opportunity for unity relationally as well. Because Jesus calls us, He invites us, you'll see this throughout the Gospels, to pick up our cross daily to deny ourselves and to follow Him. So the cross isn't, isn't just the thing that saves us through Jesus' sacrifice. The cross becomes our identity. Jesus invites us to follow in his footsteps in the path of the cross. What's the cross all about? It's about sacrifice and self-denial and radical forgiveness and radical reconciliation. So when we accept 
what Jesus did for us, and we're in Christ, we're spiritually unified, and when we grow closer to the cross and we take steps towards the cross in our behavior and our patterns and our lifestyle, then we're taking steps towards unity. I hope you see what I mean by that. The path that Jesus went on is the path that He sets for us, is the path that He encourages us to take every day. And as we take the path towards the cross, we're taking steps towards unity. And in this prayer in John 17, verse 20 through 23, He says, so that they will be one, so the world will know that You have sent Me. There's an evangelistic purpose to this prayer. It's not just so that we'll feel good and we'll feel unified. The purpose of being one, the purpose of choosing the path of the cross, the purpose of being unified is to let the world around us know who Jesus is. So it seems like if we're experiencing division or disunity, that's going to hurt the credibility of our witness. But the more that people see us headed towards the path of unity, the more likely they are to see who Christ is. And as a church, we say we want to make, mature, and multiply faithful followers of Jesus. And one step towards accomplishing that, towards making disciples, is to take steps towards unity. So let me challenge you with two things. These are what I would call action steps. and They're actually in the form of two questions. So this is going to be a little self-reflection for you. I encourage you to write it down. If you have the bulletin insert pulled out, you can write it down on this. And here's question number one. Are you causing division or are you promoting unity? This is just self-reflection for your own self. With your thoughts, with your actions, with your conversations. Are you causing division or are you promoting unity? Now this is one of those areas that's tough for me. Because that causes me to go back and examine my conversations, even the side conversations that I have. And the things that maybe I complain about or you complain about or we think about or we dwell on or we harp on and we always think that we're right on, are our words causing division or are they promoting unity for the greater good of the church? So are you causing division or are you promoting unity? And the second question is this, how are you pursuing unity? Now often in a church and probably a church our size, it's easy sometimes to feel divided, to feel a little uh, disunity from the church. Maybe that's because you used to be involved and you're not as involved as you used to be, or you're seeing so many new faces, you feel like you don't know a lot of people. And so it's easy to experience disunity from a church. Well, how are you taking steps towards pursuing unity in your own life and your own family? Maybe it means that you start today and you go and you join us for one of our Bible classes, one of our Bible communities, and you sit by somebody you don't know and you simply introduce yourself and try to listen to them and get to know them. Maybe you join a connect group, or maybe you rejoin your connect group that you haven't gone to in a while. Maybe you get with the crew that's going to Honduras this summer, and you sign up to go on this trip, and you take steps towards unity in those ways so that you can relationally feel unified with this church as you are spiritually unified. How are you taking steps towards unity. We all make decisions every day. We can either amplify our differences and really focus on that, or we can take steps towards unity. Last week, we ended out the sermon by praying. Uh, Rick Williams came up here and he prayed those four main themes that I talked about from the first 19 verses of 
John 17. And this morning, I want to conclude the sermon again by praying. And this time we're going to pray a variation over Pine Tree of verses 20 through 23 because I think that Jesus gives us this as a model for how we should pray and what we should pray for. So we're going to take a special moment here to pray this over our church. I'm going to invite uh, Neil Venable back up here, our Elder of the Month, and he is going to pray this. And then when he's done praying, he may say another word or two, and then that will be your invitation at this point. So I'm going to invite Neil up here.